There we go. Thank you. Awesome. This is like problem solving day. I love it. <laughs> um, so we, um, as you just heard from the reader, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 28. And the Great Commission is, is a passage of scripture that is so familiar to most. And so I know some people are probably rolling your eyes a little bit. We're going to have to listen to this again. I've heard it like hundreds of times over the course of your Christian journey. But um, there's two reasons I want to do this. First of all, um, my heart for ministry is all tied around discipleship and all tied around the Great Commission. So this is partly my opportunity to share with you my heart for ministry. Um, but equally, I'm so aware that as Alliance Bible Church, you're at a new beginning for your church. And you've come through this... Uh, challenging season and this exciting season at the same time. And so I'm ready to launch into new ministry. Um, I just want to call us back to the heart of what the mission of the church is. Um, so that's why we're going to look at this. Oh, fun. I'm getting visitors. This is great fun. You want to say hi to everybody? <laughs> so we'll, we'll, we'll do this. This is Monica. <laughs> Ella is eight. Happy birthday. Ewan is four and a half. Sky is two years old. Almost. And, uh, almost two. And I guess we're... I'm about to take her out. Are you, are you, are you preaching? You going to help me? Come on, baby. <laughs> we had a nice late night last night, a nice early morning with birthday, waking up very early. It was a Christmas birthday morning, so super early. So the kids are like a little out of it. So... <laughs> It's awesome. So, um, yeah, so I want to call us back to the heart of the, the mission of the church. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. I'm hoping um, there'll be some stuff in here, at least, that is new for you. Um, so as we, as we go into the Great Commission, there's two pieces of background information I want to look at before we actually jump into the Scripture. Um, and I believe it's really helpful to know because it, it, it gives the context that we need to feel the full potency of the words that then Jesus offers to to us. Um, so to start with, it's Matthew's gospel. So Matthew is unique as a gospel writer because his gospel is written uh, primarily focused on Jewish Christians. And so it serves as a tool for the, the, the early church to understand their Jewish roots and how it feeds into their understanding of Jesus and his, as in his, and his work. But it also serves an apologetic function as they minister to the Jews round about them to help them understand how to explain to people that Jesus is the Messiah that they, they've been hoping for. So everything about Matthew's gospel is designed to help us understand that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And so right back at the beginning of the gospel with the genealogy, Matthew is trying to establish that Jesus is of the lineage of Abraham and of the lineage of David. So he carries the full weight of the covenant that was promised to Abraham, and he carries the full weight of the promise given to David. And he's saying that in this person, these two lines of God's work are being fulfilled filled and carried forward. So as we get to the Great Commission, it's going to carry on and fulfill all of the work that's been done. So this is not going to be a new commission given to replace everything that's happened in the past. Matthew's trying to show that this got by this gospel that everything that Jesus is doing is the fulfillment and the continuation of the work that God is doing. And, and that's really important. The other thing that I think is interesting about Matthew's gospel that kind of adds to that picture is that Matthew's gospel is arranged around five sets of teaching that Jesus gives. So five discourses organize the gospel of Matthew. Now, Matthew's writing to Jewish believers. The Jews build their life around the Torah. The first five books, I guess the Greek name, the Pentateuch, Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, Genesis, the Slavics, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Um, and so those books are the foundation of Jewish life. 
And so most scholars would say, at the very least, Matthew is alluding to the Torah in the way he's organized the, the gospel. So it was five sets of revelation from God through the person of Moses establishing God's people. Now, Matthew's gospel is five new sets of revelation through the person of Jesus that's redirecting and clarifying the work of God to his people. Um, and right at the end of that is where we're going to find the, the Great Commission. So that's context part one, just putting it in, in the bigger picture of Matthew. But the other thing that's really helpful to understand is the discipleship context at the time that Jesus was living here on the earth. Um, so when it comes to what Jesus is doing, there are lots of people in the world at the time of Jesus that bring expectations into what Jesus is going to be offering to them. And so, for example, if you look at the Old Testament and the Jewish nation— by the time Jesus is on the scene and he's going to ask people to follow him, by the time he's going to make this invitation, um, you've already got the Jewish nation who are a covenant community who are committed to following God. And so they're in this process of following God. And within this, um, there are elements of this master discipleship relationship that you see. So first of all, as a nation, you've got God as the master with the nation of Israel following him in this sort of discipleship relationship. But then within the Old Testament, you see all of these elements where you've got um, prophets who have a school of prophets. You've got a lead prophet who's training up and shepherding these other prophets who are learning. You've got teachers of the law who are studying the Scripture and passing on understanding of Scripture, of interpretation. Um, and then you've got very tangible examples where you've got someone like Moses who passes on leadership to Joshua. You've got someone like Elijah who passes on leadership to Elisha. And so in the Old Testament context, when you think of the sort of master discipleship relationship. One of the key elements of that relationship is the passing on of leadership from one generation to the next. And so the whole point of the prophets, the kings, the judges, all of them were to help lead Israel forward in passing on the, the teachings that God was giving them so that they could live it out for generations to come. So um, when it comes to the time of Jesus, there's, there's a lot more going on. But let's look at one scripture first, and then I'll explain this in a little bit more detail. So I'm saying uh, the Great Commission is sort of at the end of the gospel, and it's the culmination of what Jesus is teaching. So if you go right back to the beginning when Jesus starts his ministry in Matthew 4.19— um, Matthew approaches Simon Peter and Andrew and he looks at them and he says another verse we're really familiar with. He says, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Uh, and I joked first service, I put that in because all you fishermen in here just, I don't have a great fishing story for this sermon, so we'll just use fishing verses. Um, but so, so this command that Jesus gives, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. So every person that he encounters, when he gives that invitation, they have a set of expectations of what Jesus is meaning. And they have some preconceived ideas of what Jesus is inviting them to do when he says, follow me. So what Jesus ends up doing is he starts with this common foundation and offering an invitation that in many ways would be familiar to their culture, but then he spends the rest of his ministry clarifying to people what marks his form of discipleship and the commitment he's calling you to as different from everything else that existed in the world at that point. 
So if you were to look just at sort of the Greco-Roman world at the time of Jesus, so a New Testament situation, master-discipleship relationships were really, really common. And so you had everything from Greek philosophers who were calling students who would learn rhetoric and, um, and all of the, the philosophies that they're discussing at the time. You've got scribes who are experts in the law that are teaching people how to copy the scriptures, how to interpret, how to make judgments about legal disputes. Um, you've got more prophets. You've even got uh, religious zealots who have like, sort of cultish followings, all the way to these sort of political revolutionaries who are saying, we're here to overthrow the government. And so there's going to be this coup, and you're going to follow me, and I'm going to lead you in, in a, a political revolution. Um, and so when Jesus walks up to the disciples and says, come follow me, all of the people that he's interacting with, whether it's a fisherman, whether it's a, a zealot or a tax collector, they all have an idea in their mind of what Jesus may be asking, and most of it's wrong. Um, and so why, we're going to look at three ways that Jesus' call is really distinct, but why this is really important is that we live in a world right now that if you go up to anyone, whether they know Jesus and have walked with him for a long time, or they don't know Jesus in the slightest, and you say, Jesus is saying, come follow me, every single one of us has a set of expectations that we import into Jesus' command to follow him, or his invitation to follow him. Um, and, and so what happens in discipleship is you issue the call to people, and we've responded to the call, but then the rest of our ministry life, the rest of our spiritual journey, is really shedding all of our false conceptions in order to understand what it is that Jesus was really calling us to. Um, so there are three things um, about Jesus' call that are very, very unique. So the first one, we'll just label, we'll label the call. Um, so Jesus extends this call. So I don't know if you know this, but in uh, the, the first century world, there we go, saviors have got it sorted. Woohoo! Thank you. Um, in the first century world, the way this worked was a lot like today applying for a college or an apprenticeship or candidating for a church, where at the end of the day, um, someone would, encouraged by their family or encouraged by their synagogue leaders, would be encouraged to go and approach a rabbi and say, hey, I want to come be your disciple. I want to study under you. And so then the rabbi would sit them down and he'd ask them questions. So typically what this would look like was, I want to test how well you've done at memorizing the Torah. So they'd start reciting scriptures and then ask them to finish the scriptures. And um, they'd start quoting scriptures and asking them where they could be found in Torah. Um, they would begin this process of asking them questions to see how they would answer them, how scriptures would fit together, and questioning how they interpret uh, different passages in scripture. Um, and at the end of that process, the rabbi had two options. They would either look at the disciple and say, yeah, I, th I think you have what it takes to come follow me, be my disciple, so come jump on board. Um, and whatever that would then look like. Or he'd look at the disciple and say, I'm sorry, I don't think you have what it takes to be like me. So you, you have two options at that point, either go find another rabbi that may be willing to take you on or return to your family trade. Um, so you have this moment in, in Matthew 4 where Jesus approaches Simon, Peter, and Andrew, who are fishermen, so they're family tradespeople, which means they've either not had the socioeconomic means to pursue discipling under a rabbi or... Um, they tried it and they failed. Uh, so these are people that probably didn't, uh, didn't have the chance of becoming, becoming a disciple. And what does Jesus do? He walks up to these people and rather than expecting them to approach him and ask if they can follow him and him test whether they're able to or not, Jesus looks at them and says, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And in that moment, how they would have understood that invitation is like this. 
I believe you have the potential to be just like me. I believe you have the potential to be just like me. And so you're here in this church because at some point in your life, you've responded to the invitation that God gave to you. Come follow me. And we've followed Jesus for varying lengths of time. And one thing I know about everybody here is we're all sinners. (laughs) And we're all making mistakes all of the time. God knows every sin that you deal with. God knows every failure that you've had in your ministry journey. Yet every day he reissues the call to you, follow me. And he's looking at you saying, it doesn't matter what you're wrestling with. It doesn't matter what your insecurities are. It doesn't matter how uh, incapable you feel of doing the work I'm calling you to do. I believe that you have the potential to be just like me. And we know he's going to defeat sin, he's going to defeat death, and he's going to send the Spirit to enable that to be possible. So, So he has issued that invitation to you. And I I want you to hear today that you have the potential to become just like him. Um, And the beautiful thing about that difference in the call is that normally the initiative lay with the disciple and the judgment laid with the rabbi. But Jesus flips it on end and he takes the initiative to offer the invitation. What that means then is the discipleship journey is about response. So it's not about us taking the initiative to find him. It's about us responding to the initiative that he's already made. So as we're going to talk about the Great Commission, we're going to talk about what it means to make disciples. At the end of the day, your spiritual journey is about learning to have the eyes to see where God is working and to respond to the initiative that he's already working in your life and then round about you. So that's number one. Number two, that's very distinct about Jesus' way of doing discipleship, we'll call it the cast, the people that he chooses to invest in as disciples. So again, at that time, to be a disciple, you had to first of all be a male. It was a male-only thing. And then you had to have the socioeconomic means to be able to do it. Um, So if you were impoverished, and you need to work to fund your family. And so there's no possibility of you pursuing the discipleship journey. But Jesus specializes in crossing cultural barriers. And, and we see it through the Gospels. You know it so well. The people he goes after, there are women who are following him and called his disciples. He praises Mary for sitting at his feet in the posture of a disciple. So Jesus says, Call, the calling to follow me and to serve me is not a male-only thing. This is for everybody. And then he looks and he says, and it's not just the desirables, the social elite, the people with the money, the people with the intellect, the people that pass the test. You can have a terrible memory and follow me. You can have no money and follow me. And you look at the people he hangs out with, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the broken and the messy, and he says, those people, follow me. I I believe you have the potential to be just like me. And so then he offers us this gift that as we walk through society, doesn't matter how bad, how broken, how unworthy you think someone is, with God's eyes, he lets you see that when he works in their life, they have the potential to be just like him. And he invites you into that work. So that's the second one. Um, So the call was different, the the cast was different, and then the cost. The cost is different. So with a a master discipleship uh, relationship, normally what that looked like is you would come and you would commit to study under the rabbi. You would learn what he was teaching. If he was an itinerant teacher, then normally that would mean you would give up your family and you'd move away and you'd follow him to be able to do his ministry. Quite often, they'd be a localized teacher and you could stay in your area and study under the rabbi. Um, But the other side of it was you studied with the intention of graduating. 
So you would study under the rabbi, hoping that eventually I'm going to graduate, I'm going to become a rabbi, I'm going to be free to interpret Scripture, I'm going to be free to call my own disciples. But when Jesus comes and he's explaining to people what discipleship to him looks like, he says, the cost is far higher. The commitment I require of you is total allegiance to Jesus above everything else, above your family, above your materials, above your future, above even your nationality, the country that you're part of, hopes, dreams, preferences. I want total allegiance above everything else, Um, even to the point that I want you to be willing to sacrifice your life for the truth that I'm revealing to you. And then alongside that, when you become a disciple of Jesus, there's no graduation. It's not that we die and go to heaven and all of a sudden we're not his disciples anymore and we're not following him. This is an eternal commitment that we make um, to follow him forever. Um, And there's no, you get to a point in your spirituality where you go make, I don't ever go make disciples of Scott. He's saying, you don't ever become the rabbi. You don't ever become the master teacher. You go out there into the world and you make disciples of me. And so our job, we never graduate from being his follower. And rather than making disciples of us, we make other disciples of his. Um, And that was so different from everything else that they would understand. So much of his ministry is explaining to people that you don't get it. That's not the way it is. This is what's unique about my form of discipleship. So, yeah, this, this statement, I love it. When you give your life to Jesus, life on your terms is over. I don't know if you like that statement. I don't. (laughs) I really like life on my terms. I like my preferences. I like my worship style. I like my method of studying the Bible. I like my coffee a particular way. Um, I don't like being uncomfortable. I don't like being pushed to do things I don't want to do. But Jesus says, when you come to me, life on your terms is over. You're not in charge anymore. And so are you willing to lay aside all your preferences and all your desires for him? Um. This seemed like I I broke some news to the first service that wasn't knowledge, but should be. (laughs) But I watched a video yesterday or the day before of John Stumbo, so the president of Christian Missionary Alliance, making an announcement. This was August 12th about their decision to enter a discussion to relocate their headquarters from Colorado Springs to somewhere else in the U.S., Um, So big deal. It's like like a 12-minute video. You should go find it. It's phenomenal. But he said this has been on his heart to try and do something to, to help the mission of, of this organization as it moves forward. And so he went to a retreat with the vice presidents, and he said he went in and he shared his heart, and they began a discussion about what it would look like um, to make this move. And let me pull up the exact quote. So this is one of the vice presidents of this denomination. He said uh, in response, he said, this is personally inconvenient. I don't like it for myself, but this is missionally essential for the Christian and Missionary Alliance. So that's the leaders of this denomination saying, we are putting preferences and the way we've done things and some of the logic of it to the side because we are on board with the mission of God and we will do whatever it takes to help advance that. And that's the cost that Jesus is talking about. So it's it's a privilege to see people leading uh, with that degree of emphasis. So, that was just the appetizer to set up <laughs> the Great Commission. So I need, I need to watch the clock because I get excited and I just get going. So let's, let's use that backdrop to jump into understanding the commission that Jesus gives us. Um, so as we start in verse 16, uh, 
The 11 disciples go to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. So a couple of things I want to point out in this passage. First of all, these are people who have been following Jesus for three and a half years, and they don't know, we know that he's coming back to life. He's dead. So the person they've been following is dead, and they're still obeying the instructions that he gave to him. And why that's important for us is we know Jesus rises from the dead. We know the end of the story. But we have lots of situations in our life that we encounter on a daily basis where it feels to us like Jesus is dead. You're asking God to move. You're praying for something and there's no response. And it feels like he's not there anymore. The example of these disciples says, when it feels like Jesus is dead, you keep obeying anyway because something is coming. Uh, and they're in for the surprise of their life. And the other part I love in here is that um, it says, when we see Jesus, uh, they see Jesus and they worship. So this, when we see Jesus, we worship. You know, this is, in some sense, the summary of the spiritual, of the spiritual journey. Um, they see him and they worship. So our job, the whole job of discipleship, the whole job of your spiritual journey is to learn to see Jesus. Because when you see him, you worship him. And I don't know about you, but if seeing Jesus means that I'll worship, I want to see Jesus in every second of my life because I want to worship him with every breath that I have. So that means not just learning to see Jesus when you're sitting in your devotions, reading scripture. It's not just seeing Jesus when you're worshiping or when you're sitting with Christians. It's seeing Jesus when you're walking down the road and you're seeing flowers in bloom. It's, it's seeing Jesus in a conversation with a coworker. Believe it or not, it's even seeing Jesus in coronavirus and atrocities that are happening in the world. Because those things want us to believe that God is dead. But when we can see Jesus in those things, we worship. And this is the journey. Are you someone who is cultivating the eyes to see Jesus in every opportunity? And because if you do, your life will be completely transformed. The other part in here I love is just this little phrase. You know, we, they see Jesus, they worship him. It says, but some doubted. And I love this because you kind of expect it to say, and so he asked the doubters to leave so he could give the the, the commission to the people that really got it. But he takes this group of people who are doubting and he says, I'm going to send you on this mission. And, and you know, it's not just the doubters because you can easily give Thomas a hard time and be like, you know, doubting Thomas is in there. But you've got Peter that's running up and chopping people's ears off. You've got James and John that are fighting to be the ones that get to, to rule all the rest of the disciples. These are people that every time Jesus is talking, they don't get it. And he's like, oh, ye of little faith. And he has to pull them to the side and give them the kiddies version so that they understand what it is that he's trying to get. So this is, he is about to give this commission to people that don't get it, who are impulsive, who are getting it wrong, who have wrong ideas, and who are doubting and fearful. And he's saying, I believe you have the ability to become just like me, and I'm going to put this responsibility on you to carry my mission forward. As you go on into verse 18, Jesus appears to them and he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So we have to remind ourselves of what's going on here. Jesus has been here on the earth. He's been living here, serving, doing ministry. He's died. He's come back from the dead. He's appearing to his friends and he's given them this message. So think for a minute of someone in your life that means a lot to you, whether they're living right now or whether it's someone that's already dead. And I want you to imagine that that person is dead and right now they appear in front of you 
and they look at you in the eye and they say, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now here's an instruction. You don't go, oh, this one's optional. <laughs> we don't go, I'm not so sure about this one. I don't kind of like this. I don't think this carries much weight. This isn't a very important instruction. You know, when that happens, we're like, what is it? And you know, movies, TV, books, all of those things out there, they understand the gospel story. Every story that's told is just a reiteration of the gospel in some way. So whenever you watch one of those movies where the hero's about to, he's, he's stuck and he doesn't know the way forward and then his like mentor from the past appears as an apparition and gives him the encouragement he needs to go forward and, and they pay attention and it changes the trajectory of their life. I mean, that's, that's, that's an allusion to what's going on in this story is Jesus is appearing and saying all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So here is what I'm charging you to do. So if we're going to do anything as believers, these next words are the heart of what we need to be committed to. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teach them to obey everything that I've commanded them. This huge instruction. So we're going to look at some words in here because we don't always understand actually what's going on in this verse. And there's so much in here that tells us what this process looks like. So when you're looking at the Bible, the verbs are usually, usually the most important part. They carry all of the weight and the action of what's going on. So you look at this in English and we make the assumption that there's four verbs here that are telling us how we're going to follow Jesus and fulfill this. But in reality, there's only one verb in the passage. And the verb is the word mathichuo, which means to make disciples. So there's one verb here. The other three are participles. This is the hard thing about studying languages is you have to learn the English grammar to make sense of the other stuff. And that's the hard part. <laughs> so participles, they're, they're the doing words, and participles are dependent on the verb in order to understand their purpose. Um, so you, you've got this word go, which really you could translate if you're being pure in participle form, you would write going. And then you've got baptizing and teaching. So these are all telling us elements about what it means to make disciples. Um, the other thing that's in here that's important is, is the phrase that's following it. We're going to make disciples, and it's telling us it's of all nations. Um, and, and we're going to see just by looking at the word go, this can mean going but like overseas and going to do the missionary thing in another field, but that means right here uh, also. And, and, and here's how you can see this. So the word go as a participle, I can never remember how you, you say participle here, right? And we say participle, oh, it's a participle, uh, which is just really, really weird. Um, so normally it's dependent on the verb. And so you would translate this if you're being like kind of pure, a pure grammar nerd, you would say like, as you're going, make disciples. Um, and so some translations do it that way, as you're going, make disciples. But uh, Paul could have used the verb. Uh, he chose to use the participle. So he wants this to be dependent on the verb. Um, but he also didn't put it where he put all the other verbs. He put it first. And that means the word go carries the weight of the command of the verb that it's next to. Um, so hopefully that makes sense. So what this means is scholars have debated with lots and lots of paper. Does this mean the command go or does it mean as you're going? And I'll just let you know from the get-go, when scholars are debating like that, the answer is yes. <laughs> um, Paul could have used the verb to make it just a command. He didn't. 
He could have put the, 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 the participle after the verb to make it have the same force as the others. He didn't. He put it first on purpose. So what he's saying here is this is a command to go. So there's an intentionality and there's a force. And as soon as Jewish people hear the word go, their minds are whizzing because they hear God saying to Abraham, go, leave your family and go. They hear the command to go and, uh, and cross over into the promised land. They, that carries the force of all of the imperatives that God's given to his people to go and do some form of obedience uh, to his work. And, and, and in part of that command is the command for us to go. And so that means for some people, you're going to leave here, you're going to go to the other side of the world, and you're going to serve those that don't know Christ. And that's such an important part of the church. But it also carries the, the participle weight, which is as you are going in your everyday life, as you're at the grocery store, as you're hanging out with family, um, as you're meeting new people, that in that situation, have the intentionality of watching for what God is doing so that you can begin the next part of the journey. So that's the go part. Part of making disciples is baptizing. Um, and so that means the work of evangelism and all that comes prior to that. So this, in the word baptizing, it means uh, the, the work of, um, of building relationships, of having a good reputation in your community, of earning the right before people to be able to speak truth into their life. So it's all of the work that comes up to the point that you have an opportunity to share the gospel, all the way up to the amazing moment where you communicate the gospel with someone and they come to know Jesus. And then with the word baptism, I mean, directly they're talking about the, word of, the work of submerging someone under the water as a symbol of the change that God has done in them. But it's more than that. Baptism is not just submerging someone in water. It's about being immersed in the life of the Trinity. You get baptized once as a symbolic act of how you intend to live for the rest of your life. And that's the every day of our life we're immersing ourselves, saturating ourselves in the, the love relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and allowing that to permeate our lives and then pour out of us into the people around about. Um, and so it's not just this one-time definitive event, but it's a posture that you're then going to lead people into. And then the final verb tells us what that looks like. You're going to teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And, and you know, in the Western world, we get this so wrong because we have divorced the accumulation of knowledge from the transformation in our life. Um, that's a very Greek and very Western thing to focus on learning as accumulation of knowledge. And in, in the Hebrew, Aramaic kind of world, that, that wasn't a thing. You can't separate learning from transformation. And actually, you can't separate learning from transformation. So when Jesus looks at someone and he says, he who has ears, let him hear. He's not saying if you have ears, which hopefully we, we do. Um, if you have ears, then listen to the words and accumulate the knowledge. He's saying, if you have ears, you're going to listen to what I'm saying. You're going to allow it to impact your life, and it's going to change you. And by implication, if I look at your life and I don't see the fruit of what I've, I've taught, you didn't hear. Um, so, so learning the facts and being transformed go hand in hand. You cannot separate them. There, there's a couple of verses that, that I want to put up here that, um, that, that trouble me, haunt me, scare me. I, I, don't, I don't know... I don't know the right word for this, um, but these two verses are, uh, are very potent. Jesus appears to some religious leaders 
who are experts in the law. And he says this to them. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So it is possible to spend your whole Christian life devoted to understanding scripture and miss Jesus. It is is possible to spend your whole life understanding what this says and teaching it and not allowing it to permeate your life. I never want to be that person. Um, But that's what happens when we reduce discipleship to making sure we know the scriptures without the rest of what goes with it and how we apply it and live it out. But then on the flip side of that, you've got Matthew talking to these people and he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Many of you will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name and perform many miracles? And then I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So it's even possible to be living in the world doing Christ-like things and miraculous Christ-like things while we don't actually know the person that we're supposed to be doing it in the name of. And one of the amazing things about the grace of God is people are out there doing things not in the name of Jesus, and God loves the person on the receiving end of it, so moves in their life graciously anyway. We can stand up here and teach bad theology, and God can transform someone's life. I'd but we don't want God working in spite of us. <laughs> we want to work in partnership with him, which, which is hugely important. So when it comes to teaching, it's more than learning the right facts. It's more than even learning the right behaviors. It's about the things that we learn about him. It's about the power that we demonstrate as we live out good works and powerful works amongst the people around about us. And at the end of the day, it's about modeling to the people around about us what the discipleship journey is. Jesus crossed all cultural barriers. I said that in describing one of the differences about his call. Um, But when you look at a room like this, you know, a thing that's important to understand is you're never too young and you're never too old to be used by God in the work of the Great Commission. You're never disqualified. Um, God doesn't give like like a training wheels Holy Spirit to the kids and then a tired out, Uh, mine's not working very well, Holy Spirit, to the elderly people. It's not the way it works. Um, God gives the same Holy Spirit to all of us, and no one's disqualified from the youngest kid. God can work in their heart and use them in the work of sharing the gospel. To the oldest person who feels like they're unworthy, that they don't have the strength left to give, that that God can use all of us. Um, And I think as I've interacted with you, as I've listened to you, as I prayed in, in, in preparation for this, I think, I think what, I, what I was realizing is, you know, there's, there's people here who you think, because I'm so young, this doesn't matter. Um, I look at my eight-year-old daughter, or eight-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 12-year-old, um, and I look at stories in the scripture where God's using Josiah as a seven-year-old kid, where he's using Mary as a 12-year-old girl, where most of the disciples are probably 13, 14 years old, and these are the people that God is calling uh, to drive his work forward. So God can use the smallest child. Um, But then I know in the situation that you've been in as a church, I know there's some people who you're looking back on your life feeling like, I've kind of not done a good job of the disciple-making part. I've studied God, I I pray a lot, but the actual work I've been out there, like I'm not good at it, and it's probably past my time. And I want to tell you that that's not true. 
because you're never too old to begin the journey of walking in the Great Commission. Um, I heard someone say this, you know, you're never too old to set a new goal uh, or a new dream. And you've modeled this because you've been in this process, a painful process and an exciting process, where you've been gathering as a church and reflecting on the past and looking at the present and thinking ahead to the future. And God has been birthing in you new dreams. He's given you fresh vision for what your church looks like moving forward. He's given you a fresh passion for what it looks like to reach the people around about you. And you may look and go, well, yes, we're too old for that, so we're going to bring in a young person who can help make that happen. Well, that's part of it. But you are not past it. God still wants to use you. And even if you've never been active in the work of disciple-making your whole life, it is not too late to start. You have so much to offer. And we live in a society that does a horrendous job of honoring our elders. Um, and that's not the biblical way. Um, God never designed it to be that way. I want, I want to put up a couple of scriptures here that I think are hugely important in this. So Psalm 92, you're probably very familiar with it, says, The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green, proclaiming the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there's no wickedness in him. That's a promise. It doesn't matter how incapacitated you feel. It doesn't matter how little you feel you have to offer, how poorly your mind is remembering things, how little strength you feel you have. God promises that your life will bear fruit for the kingdom. Um, I, Proverbs twenty twenty nine: the beautiful partnership. The glory of young men is their strength. Gray hair is the splendor of the old. So as young people, we come in with all of this energy, all these ideas, ready to run and do things. Um, but it's often ill-informed. And we have lots of energy and not a whole lot of wisdom. And so when we step out there, we make lots of mistakes. We require the gray-haired wisdom that shapes the life experience that helps shape what we do. Um, but then you have the splendor of the old as their gray hair. Your wisdom and your ideas and your life experience, when you don't have the energy or the ability to implement it, is also only half the picture. So we need the strength of the young to drive forward, guarded by the wisdom of the old. And we need the wisdom of the old to, to be granted to, to the strength of the young to carry your heart and your vision forward. It's a beautiful partnership that's the way God's always intended us to operate. If I'm around here more, you're going to hear me say this a lot. Um, one, of the, one of my kind of convictions about discipleship. Discipleship is about inviting people into your life, into your relationship with God. It's not about inserting yourself into others. Discipleship is about inviting people into your life, not inserting yourself into others. And we, we've all had these experiences where someone inserts themselves <laughs> where it's not wanted. And we usually don't respond very well. Um, but what this journey is supposed to be about is you're living your life, learning to see God in everything around you and learning to worship him. You're you know how to, how to uh, stand with God in faith when hard times come. Um, so this is about you walking those things out and then inviting other people into that journey to see it. 
You want your neighbor to see your hope when things are hard. You want them to see your faith when the world is fearful. Um, And so we need to be living this out, practicing it so people see it, and then they'll come to us and say, tell me about why you're doing that. I'm terrified when my kids are growing up and I have to parent adult kids. I keep hearing it's the hardest thing in the world. Um, But there's some wisdom that I've gleaned that, that I've seen work multiple times in counseling that I think is really, really helpful. And it's this. I mean, this, I guess this isn't just parent-to-child, but it's seen often in parent-child relationships. Someone will come to me and say, so my kid won't listen to me. They're making decisions that I don't agree with, and I'm trying to tell them that it's not okay, and they just don't want to hear it. You're inserting yourself into their life rather than inviting them into yours. And this generation, what they want is they want to be able to come to you and draw on your wisdom. They don't want it forced on them. And so what that means is you have work to do, like I've said multiple times, you have work to do to earn the right for your wisdom to be heard. And sometimes that means listening to their terrible theology. Sometimes it means supporting them in some dumb decisions. Um, But you're hoping that your vulnerability, as, as you say to them, I struggle with this aspect with God. I have doubts and fears over here. I fail in this way. And as they watch you honestly failing and trying and practicing and see God moving in you, then they have a moment when they're failing. They're going to come to you and say, how did you cope with this? Help me to see. And we have a responsibility as the young people (laughs) to not just bristle when people are trying to give us their wisdom because they're doing it from a good heart with experience having made the mistakes that we've made, and they're trying to help. So we have to lovingly listen and not put a a motive on their their, uh, advice that is not what is true to their heart. So the last part of this I I want to talk about is um, discipleship is a team game. So I've spent a lot of time just emphasizing our role as disciple makers. Um, But this is a team game. Jesus comes to the 11 disciples, and it says he came and he said to them. It doesn't say he took each disciple aside one at a time and said, this commission is yours, and you're solely responsible for it. This is Jesus taking this group of people and forming the new mission that's a continuation of what he's doing in this new covenant community that's moving forward. And so it's a team effort. And so what that means is we have things that we have to do individually. We have, there are things we have to do together. There's a scholar, Julie Garman, who writes a lot about community, and she uses this phrase, individuals and community. And she says, whenever you're encountering teaching in the Bible, it's addressed to individuals and community. So there's always a responsibility that is yours as the individual, and there's always an element of it. It's the responsibility that we carry together. And so we could say it's your job to go out there and make disciples of all nations and do it all yourself, but then we can just rip 1 Corinthians 12 out of the Bible because that part tells us we need each other. Um, We had a a, a picture up here earlier. If we can find it, I'll put it back up. It says discipleship uh, at the top and then has the two elements underneath. But this is a pet peeve of mine in the discipleship process. I hear people say all the time, there's evangelism and there's discipleship. And I'm like, that's not what the Great Commission says. It says, go make disciples. And part of it means that you baptize people and part of it means that you're teaching them. So you might be better saying there's evangelism and then there's the work of maturing the people that have come to faith. Um, 
But some people are really good at evangelism and they're great at building relationships and they're great at bringing people into the church and they're terrible at then walking them through what scripture teaches and how they grow. And you have people who are really great at showing people the scriptures and showing people how to live. Um, We need each other. And what it means is as a church, we have to look at corporately and say, who are we together? What are our strengths? And if we're great over here in the maturing part, we got to be looking for some people that are good at evangelism. We've got to bring them in. We've got to partner with them. We've got to have them help teach us and train us so that together we can be effective at carrying out the Great Commission. So it's a team game. Last part of the verse, probably the best part of the verse, the command, go make disciples. And then he says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So this is not a burden he puts on us and then sends us out to do ourselves. He promises his presence to go with us. And what does that mean? It means he promises that he's there. He promises to partner with us in the work. He promises to give us the power to do it, that we're walking in the authority that he carries as we do it. Uh, And he is really the one doing the work and we're just along for the ride. But if you ask yourself the question, like I hear people say, you know, I just wish I could experience more of the presence of God in my life. According to this verse, if you want the presence of God in your life, go make disciples because then his presence is with you. As a church, if you want to experience more of the presence of God here in this room as you gather, go make disciples because his presence manifests as we do that work. So just to to wrap up, I want to leave you with with some things to reflect on because you're in this new season as as you're walking forward. It's a new beginning. Um, so part of this is, is, a, is a pleading with you, I guess, um, to recommit yourself. Part of this you've already done, but just continue to recommit yourself to making the Great Commission the priority of what you do as a church. Um, but here's two questions I want you to think about. One is, who are the people in your life that don't know Jesus, that you're intentionally engaged in relationship with and having spiritual conversation? I think it's easy to have long-term relationships with people that don't know Jesus and they get fearful and complacent about having spiritual conversation. But who are the people that we're in spiritual conversation with? And then the other one is, who are the people that you're actively uh, walking in the work of maturing with who are of the next generation? Because the future of the church is as you invest in the next generation and they invest in the next generation. So who are the people that you're currently investing in helping them to become more like Jesus? And if there are people, then give it your wholehearted devotion and try and pick up a couple more. (laughs) And if you're not, then ask the question, God has strategically placed me in this world in relationship with people who are hungry for investment. So who has God placed in your life that he's asking you to step into that work with and then take the step forward? So let me pray. God, thank you that you're a God who loves us uh, and who is partnering with us. And thank you that you entrust us with this responsibility to carry the gospel forward. Um, So whether we're eight years old or 80 years old, thank you that you look at us and see that we have the capability of becoming like you and that empowered by your spirit, we will see the Great Commission fulfilled through our lives. Uh, as you move. So God, bless this church. Bless them as they re-envision what you're calling them to do. And may your love pour through them 
into Hillsborough and beyond. And may your name be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. The band disappeared.